This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrine Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Lightning Round. Lightning Round. Also Lightning Round. And... Lightning Round! Over the Edge, the twisted RPG of counterculture conspiracy, weird science, and urban danger. Reimagined for its third edition by its original creator, Jonathan Tweet, for a new generation of role players. New narrative rules improve storytelling. New character traits propel drama. Every conspiracy, every character, and every location is given a fresh new twist. The Edge is the weirdest city in the world. Get into trouble. Question your place in the crazed multiverse. Take a draft of madness. Transcend mortal limits. Fight a baboon! Along the way, you might find out who really controls humanity. Unless, of course, you've been working for them all along. Fast dramatic character creation, laser focused on creating dynamic protagonists. A simple 2 die 6 resolution mechanic. Inject shocking unexpected outcomes through good twists, bad twists, and twist ties. Three strikes and you're dead. But until you're risking that third strike, you can safely take big risks, electrifying gameplay with dramatic, exciting moments. Plan your trip to the island you only think you remember by visiting at Atlas-games.com slash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. Please remember Liberty is job one. Disarmament means peace. It's polite to speak English. And of course, paranormal activity is perfectly legal. Thank you for your consent. Hey, Ken. Hey, Robin. Guess what episode this is? Uh, I don't know, Robin. What episode is it? This is episode 350. Goodness. Why, that's divisible by 50, Robin. I don't know if you're aware of that mathematical trivia. Yes, that means we've been doing Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff for seven years now. Can you believe it? Dun, dun, dun. That means in dog years, we're a year old. No. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that math checks out. Yeah. Um, or, no, or, in podcast years, we are 50 because podcasts famously um, uh, go and uh, live on a farm upstate, uh, a lot of them. Well, thank you to our Patreon backers. Uh, this podcast would certainly would have gone to a farm upstate as soon as we'd done the math on how much time you're spending on this. Uh, they leapt into the breach. Like the heroes they are. Like the, like the breach fillers, the, the heroes, the titans that they are. And so, uh, long time uh, listeners will know what we do in our anniversary episodes. We do Lightning Round! Where we, uh, answer a whole bunch of questions in quick succession and we gather these questions from our Patreon backers. And, uh, that's why we're starting off with, uh, instead of the, uh, usual shout out to a selected a uh, few beloved backers, we're thanking all of you for keeping this podcast going, and particularly the bunch of you who supplied uh, questions for this. A uh, few uh, housekeeping notes before we bring the lightning, lightning. If you gave us multiple questions, I uh, started out by uh, picking one uh, and trying to get a balance of different questions going. So if we if we have less than an hour under our belt and we run out of the first round of questions, we'll start slipping in uh, the questions of people who ask multiples. Also, if a question was uh, so erudite and penetrating that it seemed to suggest an entire segment. Um, I set it aside uh, for later so we can give it the full treatment. And this was particularly the case for those of you who suggested Ken's time machine questions. Uh, there are a whole bunch of them that should be segments of their own. And that's good because we were running low 
on yeah. Patreon. Fills the uh, time hopper. Yes, exactly. But as so often the case, if you just wait around, stuff works out right. Yes. Also in true and not in time travel, but super true in time travel. Right. Um, and as always, if you are asking a time travel question about a, a multi-generational atrocity, uh, that, uh, even, uh, Jin and, uh, and a fun fool around in the time stream can't really fix, I, I do leave those out just because, uh, they're, um, contrary to the spirit, uh, of the. Sometimes uh, they will make a history hut, but. Yes. By and large. Yes. Not a time machine question. So without further ado, Ken, would you like to unveil the first of the lightning round questions? Anders Gabrielson asks, when running a game set in Earth history, what is the best way to introduce a historical character where the players should know their historical char- significance, but you don't know if they do without going into a lecture? Robin? I think he used the old as-you-know technique, because, of course, the characters know a lot more than the players do. And so you can say, well, uh, as you know... Uh, your waiter for the evening is Samuel Clemens, and uh, it helps if you've got an image of them. Uh, you can uh, uh, bring up a, a, a painting if it's someone from before the age of photography, or a coin, or afterwards a photograph, and that signals, uh, uh, since this is not a drawing that you made or that you... Right, signals uh, that they at least have a Wikipedia entry. Yes, um, and then that invites the player to... Uh, if they don't know who that is, uh, you know, a, a, a clever player will go, oh, remind me all about St. Benedict. I have forgotten. And then you can supply whatever information uh, that you want, but sort of create the opportunity for them to ask questions uh, and then only uh, supply all of the bullet points as you are uh, asked about them. I, I would differentiate in this question. I don't know which one Anders meant players or characters. I think when characters should know, those are all excellent ideas. When players should know, I just leave it as a little Easter egg for them to discover later. So when they were meeting um, Bob and Charles in my Unknown Armies game in New York at the um, uh, Art Students uh, Collective, it took them a little while to realize that those were Robert W. Chambers and Charles uh, Dana Gibson, and they enjoyed the discovery as much as they discovered the other things. Uh, similarly, you meet a bunch of gunfighters. Only later do you say, oh, John Wesley Harding, and then that's a moment, right? So much like meeting an actual gunfighter, assume they're famous until you discover otherwise. Lightning round! Jason Thompson asks, name a great old one who doesn't get enough love. Well, first of all, Bass doesn't get enough love because she's a kitty, but um, amongst the, uh, the, the sort of gloppier ones, I personally think that there is a great deal of love to be given still for uh, Jar the Twin Obscenity, which was made up by uh, August Derleth in an inspired moment and then ignored by everybody. And I think Jar's got some possibilities to him because mythical twins are a big thing in mythology and they're not a big thing in the Cthulhu mythos. And I think Jar is perfectly positioned to suddenly be revealed as the source of Castor and Pollux and Romulus and Remus and uh, Manip and Kilobob and all of your mythical twins. I think he's he's great. He's just sitting there in Malaysia waiting to be loved. Go get him, Jar. Uh, well, you, you picked a, a D-lister. I'm going to pick a, a B or C-lister. Uh, Zathagua, I, I don't think, gets quite enough attention. Uh, and this is showing my uh, affection for Clark Ashton Smith by uh, picking this one. But uh, uh, as we might get to later, I think there is uh, something particularly uh, pregnant about the metaphor of the uh, slothful, uh, gluttonous uh, old one who's just sort of waiting in a corner for the latest uh, meal to uh, uh, come along and is sitting there looking all 
all warty and uh, and ghostening. Lightning round! Michael Schiffer asks, which is greater, Robin's disdain for alternate history or Ken's disdain for Game of Thrones? And is there a third category where your respective appreciation for enjoyment of the subject lies even further apart? Robin? Uh, I am uh, more tolerant of slow cinema than you are, even though I am largely a skeptic of it. I think my disdain for alternate... Well, in both cases, we express our disdain for those things by not consuming them. Yeah, it's so the simplest. It's, uh, you know, we're just showing our disdain for the benefit of, of you, the listener. And of course, as long, long, long time listeners know, the true schism between us, uh, isn't even politics. It's how to cook a steak. Yes. Yes. It is a, it is a deep schism that in a brotherhood less strong than Robin's and mine would have sent us to each other's corners with, uh, with pistols at dawn. And, and I'm aware that my position that steakhouses are bad is a, a minority wrong. take. So I, I'm wrong. not, I'm not trying to, to push that on, on other people. Yeah. But he should be gunned, he should be gunned down in the street for it. Uh, Lee Williams asks, with good omens now adapted for the small screen, which of the author's legacies do you think will last the longer, Terry or Neil? I would love to say Terry, because I think Terry is a better novelist by far than Neil Gaiman. But Neil Gaiman cleverly worked in more than one medium. And the uh, the, the Sandman is going to last, I think, as long as people consume narrative art. Um, it's just that good. Uh, it's, of course, a gallimaufry of other influences, but hey, so is the wasteland. You know, deal with it. And the sad thing about Terry Pratchett is comedy ages badly. It's just the truth. Yeah. There, there are very, very few. There's like maybe one a century immortal comedian, and that's it. Well, there, I think there's uh, lots of immortal comedian on uh, on film and on television. In, but the, in print, I mean. The, the comic novel uh, yeah. is very specific because it is so uh, language-based. So I, I think absolutely right there. Lightning round! Mikey Ham asks, why haven't card-based RPGs really gained a foothold despite some innovative attempts? Economics, mechanics, or something else? Robin? Well, having introduced cards to uh, the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, one of the issues is just sort of uh, handling cost, uh, that uh, it is you you have to do something that is really worth it in order to introduce the uh, added bother of dealing with cards. Um, if it is a game where the actual... And, and and the cards in Yellow King really are just like a mnemonic device. It's just a right. they're, they're just they're little like hand yeah. in tiny little card form. It's not like a card deck where you're rolling, you're pulling random things out, and then that's actually the the engine. Uh, so even then, it's sort of an add-on. But I, I think that's uh, absolutely it. Is that uh, if you are trying to sell people an actual game engine that runs on a card mechanic where you're dealing cards, you have to sell people two things. You have to sell them both the book. And the uh, and the deck of cards and card manufacturer, especially cards that will uh, hold up to the sort of punishment that, say, Magic the Gathering cards undergo, is uh, exceptionally complex. And uh, we're entering an era where even book printing is getting more hellaciously difficult. And so I can see a lot of publishers going, you know what, we kind of know how to print books and we don't know how to print cards. And that's the way we like it. And I would say, uh, echoing Robin, form factor. Lightning round! Hector Trelane asks, Why were all fantasy movies cheesy embarrassments until The Fellowship of the Ring, or perhaps until Willow? I doubt the premise. I reject the premise, Robin. <laughs> because uh, Thief of Baghdad and Wizard of Oz take that premise out and stab it in the heart. 
Um, and even the cheesy movies, uh, by Ray Harryhausen are not embarrassments at all. Watch Jason and the Argonauts. That's a great damn movie. So right. wrong. Your question is wrong. I, I think the question implies, I think, uh, epic fantasy or high fantasy. Uh, I'm sorry. Jason and the Argonauts is epic and high. Right. So if, if, if we take the, the question on its negligible merits. terms, <laughs> I, I think the reason is it just took uh, a long time for people who are actually steeped in the genre to get to be filmmakers. So, uh, there had to be someone who is young enough, uh, to be a Tolkien fan, grow up, uh, to then become a filmmaker in the case of, of Peter Jackson. Right Timothy Daly asks, if a fanboy gets to meet his subject of fanboyage, like say the super famous Ken and or Robin, how much fanboying is too much? What are the guidelines for how to interact? I worry about these things. Timothy, worry not. Robin is going to answer your question. Right. Okay. So for, uh, people like Ken and I, the, the thing to remember, uh, when you see this at the convention is that we are not actually famous. <laughs> oh, God, no. No. Uh, we may be in an event full of people who think we're famous, but we are not. So, uh, it's not like, uh, for example, even Will Wheaton can't go anywhere at a convention without needing security because, uh, people come at him and need stuff from him all the time. And he is also a fan and would like to enjoy, uh, shows, but, uh, he's had a history of weird stuff happening and people jumping boundaries. Well, I think both in you, you and I can have had, uh, lucky enough to not really have that. Um, any, uh, a woman working in the industry just has to worry about the traditional and incessant problems of uh, men who do not observe uh, boundaries. So, uh, that's something you might want to keep in, my, in mind as well. But, um, I'm there because I want to talk to people. That's the whole reason I'm there is to say hello and get to know folks and to feel that there is someone on the other end of the stuff that I do, the other, uh, you know, 49 or 47 weeks of the year when I'm working and I'm not at a convention. So this is sort of uh, uh, a precious opportunity for me to see the effect that my work has. So I'm quite uh, eager to talk to people and no rules other than just the standard one of human interaction of gauge the other person's response and react accordingly uh, apply. So, uh, you know, I've had maybe one or two situations that were a little awkward over the years. And those were people who uh, I had already given them the answer to the question and they didn't like the answer. So they kept repeating the question. But uh, other than that, uh, I do my best to seem approachable without being ex- an extrovert, and I think most people uh, in my position uh, would feel the same. Yeah, I mean, everything Robin said, uh, basically, you know, many of our fans bring liquor. I can't say that's a bad idea, uh, but just, you know... <laughs> I've, I've, I've met and talked to and had the, the privilege of getting to engage with Clive Barker and Robert Block and neither of them gave me shade. So we're not here to give shade. We're here to sign your book and, uh, thank you for, you know, making what we do, uh, pay for the cats. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a two way street here. We're happy to see you too. Lightning round! Paul Stefko asks, which of your individual works has most exceeded your expectations in fan response? Uh, I think clearly for me, that answer has to be Day After Ragnarok, which I released thinking it would be a nice little thing that it would get my yayas out and teach me to work with Savage Worlds and became a giant deal. And people still uh, want more of it. And uh, I apologize to those people for not having yet gotten back to it. But it won uh, Ennies and it won all kinds of awards and it, it sold very well and came into all kinds of different versions. It had a much bigger uh, uh, chord struck than I thought was possible. So thanks to all the Day After Ragnarok fans out there and I feel your pain. Robin. For me, it was Hamlet's hit points. I thought that this was the most 
recondite thing that I can possibly do, a, a deep dive uh, into the building blocks of narrative, uh, taking three classic stories uh, in different media and applying them, uh, the lessons from them to role-playing. And I thought that that had an audience of 100 people, uh, uh, one of which was me, and uh, another two of which were uh, Jeff Tidball and Will Hindmarch, a game playwright. Uh, but it has gone on to be an evergreen uh, book. It still continues to sell quite strongly and uh, is a textbook uh, in some classes, which uh, is uh, unbelievable uh, in and of itself. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? Lightning Round! Friedrich Bjarnason asks, name a fellow time traveler and what gave him away, Robin. So what you want to look for in time travelers is not someone who changes the entire world and then sticks around, uh, because uh, obviously we know Ken comes back, uh, and not just because he has a podcast to do every week, uh, but also because it's dangerous to stick around after you change the world, because then the people who wanted it changed in the other direction come after you, and uh, that can be... Uh, embarrassing if not fatal um so you need to look at someone who uh had an interesting life had uh, a bunch of uh, fun and then uh kind of went away perhaps under mysterious or sudden circumstances so my theory is that carol lombard the hollywood actress uh, who specialized uh, particularly in romantic comedies of the 1930s uh and who supposedly died in a plane crash uh is uh, was a time traveler, that she was a, a fan of classic film from the future. And uh, uh, Carol, uh, very famously, was someone who uh, was a hedonist. Uh, she figured that if there was someone that you met who you found attractive, it was, uh, uh, why bother shaking their hand when you could go to bed with them? And so uh, she uh, cut a Which swath. Which only works for Carol Lombard, by the way, as a note. Well, yes, you have to have something to offer, and, and our right. time traveler certainly does in this scenario. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, she was uh, famously beloved by all of her uh, co-stars, and and she had a delightful hedonistic 
a time of uh, cocktails and, and uh, merriment and sensual experience. And uh, perhaps accidentally, I would think, became a big movie star. I think that she probably just uh, went into the time machine to kind of hang around and people noticed how charming and delightful she was. And before she knew it, she but I think I think if you're going back in time to the golden age of Hollywood, there's something in you that says, oh, yeah. I'm going to be in movies too. Right. But there's also something t- telling you don't interfere too much with the time stream. And right. so, yeah. uh, you know, you have, when you went back to thirties Hollywood, you didn't try to get all of Eric. Moore's I did not. Parts. I did not. I, yeah. I, I, I just took a couple of parts from Robert Benchley, but you can't tell. Yes. <laughs> and she, uh, married Clark Gable. And then, you know, once that happened, she realized that she'd gone too far and she really was going to change the timeline. And so, uh, she, uh, arranged to, uh, fake her own death in a plane accident and uh, went back to her own time. There you go. My answer is the painter of the of the uh, Nile mosaic of Palestrina, who painted a dinosaur into it. That's a giveaway. Just going to tell you. <laughs> Don't put dinosaurs in, in, in Roman-era mosaics. They will get that. Well, not every time. They haven't got the other 19, but they have gotten that one. So good for you, Nile mosaic painter. That was a, that was a good time we had. Lightning round! Noel Warford asks, if you were an Avenger, which Avenger would you be? And there's a couple of possible answers, because there's the adventure that I would be, and there's the adventure that I would like to be, right? <laughs> I think we would all like to be Tony Stark or Captain America, and I suspect in our heart of hearts, we are all Hawkeye, <laughs> just standing there with a bow saying, yeah, I'm in the wrong comic book. Well, even Hawkeye... To, to learn enough archery to stand toe-to-toe with the rest of the Avengers, that's right. a lot of work. Um, yeah. So I would think that you would, uh, if I got to pick, I would just yeah, be, you know, not? <laughs> naturally uh, a badass. And while you're doing that, why not also be immortal? And uh, why not have wine, women, and song? Uh, so I'd be Hercules. Hercules. Good choice. Lightning round! Brett Abbott asks, what is the best way to run a maze in an RPG without graph paper or map? Theater of the Mind style. Robin? Well, first of all, mazes are not that good. <laughs> I'm currently <laughs> yeah. running a first maze. First of all, I wouldn't start from here. Because <laughs> there's a famous one in uh, in RuneQuest. But then what the players just do is, we turn right every time. Yeah, so you come to a, a fork. Yeah, we turn right. Yep. Uh, you come to another fork. Yeah, we turn right. So I would say uh, that the fun of being trapped in a maze... Uh, is something it's extremely uh, hard to replicate, and so uh, what I would do is make it a series of die rolls or a uh, a maze that keeps shifting direction or uh, or something like that. But that actual, uh, you know, and have it more about the feeling of what's in the maze or a reason why you get confused and become disoriented. You know, the good old fashioned, uh, you know, sleep fog that comes up and then you wake up somewhere else in the maze and you need to get out. Right, that's the. The thing about a maze, but uh, the interesting thing in the maze is not the maze itself, it's the minotaur. Right. I mean, yeah, unless the maze itself is the dungeon, in which case you're running it like every other dungeon. Um, abstract it to your interval or your maze finding skill or your uh, inertia power or whatever it happens to be. Roll to see how long you take to get out of the maze. If you take too long, bad stuff happens to you because you're still trapped in a maze. Um, if you're in The Shining and you have to get out of the maze before Jack Nicholson comes after you, that's just a contest between you and Jack Nicholson of maze running and just resolve that and go on. Uh, maze excitement is like glacier excitement. It's not that exciting in role playing. Alden Strock asks, what's the most off brand thing that you nevertheless enjoy? Maybe something you encountered in the last year or so. Hmm. I mean, I don't know to what extent my brand, uh, is damaged 
by me enjoying some of the things I enjoy because part of my brand is enjoying all kinds of things. But I think that one of the things that I do enjoy if I ever get a chance to do it, which isn't very often, is swimming. I like swimming. Swimming is fun. And since it is associated with athleticism, that is definitely not my brand. But I do like it. I just don't do a lot of it. And so that is something that I, I think is great but is not really core to anything that I write or present. But I do I do like swimming. It's good fun. Robin? My answer is, is similar in that uh, recently I've been getting in shape uh, to the point where uh, I'm in danger of becoming the guy who tells you about his uh, easy-peasy productive workout routine. Oh, my God. And, yeah, so uh, yeah. we want to get out of this subject before yeah. I start doing that. But, you know, I'm not I'm not working for, you know, a six-pack or anything, but uh, I think I've managed to achieve, like... Uh, Robin Robin is definitely on the, on the uh, lower percentile of game designer ovoidness. I've uh, managed to achieve, I think, like, middle-aged Robert Mitchum. So that's what I'm shooting for, Robert Mitchum's there physique you go. At, Good look. at the same age. All you need is the finger tattoos. Yes, uh, uh, <laughs> D and 20 on the different right. hands. Lightning round! Nicholas Matakanen asks, Why is the Cthulhu Hut on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff dot com empty? Ooh, a spectral question. Uh, this would be the most fascinating answer in this entire episode, which is that when uh, Simon Rogers was initially setting up the site, uh, he typed in a number of tags as his test of whether tags were working or not. And uh, we were in the Pelgrane office at the time, and we pitched him a couple tags like History Hut and Ken's Time Machine. And I guess he also typed in Cthulhu Hut. But in fact, this is the first time uh really realized that there is a Cthulhu Hut uh, for things to be in. Lightning round! Ian Carlson asks, if the Yellow King's dread influence was to creep backwards in time, what period would you be most excited to see it manifest in, and why? Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm a fan of the notion that the Yellow King's dread influence is in all times, but yes, I think that the, a good, uh, uh, heck, a great time to see the Yellow King would be, uh, late Roman Empire. Because you have the same decadence that you have in the late French Empire that uh, Chambers is writing about. Plus, you have the sort of notion that there is an older theater, and so you can be rediscovering older theater, but you're also dealing with what we imagine or what we believe to be very, very young theater. So if you're looking at, oh, this is a lost play of of Seneca or a lost tragedy of Euripides, and we're going to perform it now in our Roman Forum here in the year 410 AD, and nothing bad could ever happen I think that's great fun. Plus, decadence and um, uh, family misery is very Roman. So I think that uh, the Yellow King would work very, very well as a late Roman game. Robin? Um, I was going to say uh, this sort of uh, the height of Athenian democracy. But since that's too close to your answer, I'm going to say uh, the most Chambersian uh, time period to go back into would be uh, medieval Brittany. Uh, because, of course, Chambers uh, writes a bunch of, about Brittany and there's a... Uh, a lot of weird detail in there that already has that sort of uh, decadent fairy tale style. So you could uh, go back to the uh, original Kingdom of East. Lightning round! Michael Prescott asks, Is play purely for leisure a rarity for a professional RPG writer, or are you always playtesting? Robin! That's an or in which both sides of the or are the same. And the yeah. answer is uh, yes. People want the <laughs> romantic answer to be that uh, we also have all sorts of time to play all sorts of other games. Uh, but I, uh, at least, uh, and I run a, a weekly game, so I'm not sure, can I feel that I uh, need to dive uh, deep, particularly into my own designs to find uh, new ways of approaching them uh, later, and also, of course, to learn 
uh, other uh, rule sets because uh, uh, if you just assume there's some sort of generic rule set that determines people's uh, decisions, play RuneQuest. Yeah. <laughs> Where both <laughs> GM and players have to make some or dramatic... Other, play RuneQuest after playing Drama System. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, or or it, even more to the point, uh, uh, you know, Gumshoe or Feng Shui or something. So, yeah, you, you got to be playing what you're working on. Right. I am a less uh, professional in every respect game designer than Robin, so much of my weekly play, and again, I would parenthize by saying if you are a game writer, game designer, you should be playing, otherwise you're just a bad novelist. Um, but my games sometimes are playtest and sometimes are sort of uh, mental uh, engine cleaning and sometimes they turn they begin as one and become the other because I'll have an idea so fun and so good that people insist on me turning it into a game later and that is sometimes what happens so uh both and neither lightning round uh, JT asks if you could hire a team of crack bookhounds to acquire you a copy of any book including ones no longer surviving or even fictional what would you send them after and Ken, since you get to answer this first, I'm going to see if you uh, give the obvious answer. Um, well, we'll see how obvious obvious is. My current answer, uh, the one that is obsessing me because I'm working, as I've said before, on the Hellenistic era, is uh, the third volume of Diodorus Siculus's Bibliotheca Historica, his universal history, which cuts off right after the end of the wars for Alexander the Great's empire. And he lived in, uh, like, the very tail end of the Hellenistic era in Cleopatra's Egypt, basically, um, or, or the era of. He lived in Sicily, as we know from his name. But uh, that's the part I'm writing a game about right now, and there's no prime source. I want there to be a prime source. I want Diodorus to have survived. Uh, ask me again on the next game project. I'll give you a different answer. Robin. Uh, well, you left uh, Aristotle's comedy on the table, so right. uh, I am certainly I need a copy of that. And if you had said Aristotle's comedy, I would have said uh, Jack Vance's screenplay for uh, the Dying Earth movie that uh, Stanley Kubrick was going to shoot. Uh, but instead, he decided to do it in an accessible historical period where there were costumes that had already uh, basically been designed. So we did Barry Lyndon instead. Ooh, Chris Kelly asks, elevator pitch for a modern Sothagua cult? Robin? Uh, it's a hedge fund. Uh, the uh, Zathagua worshippers are uh, accumulating all of the world's uh, resources uh, to themselves and gobbling it up, just as the toady old uh, one himself is uh, sitting bloated in a corner of the cosmos somewhere, just uh, sucking in uh, planets and black holes. And so uh, the more misery they cause, the more uh, people who get uh, uh, fired from uh, perfectly uh, healthy companies in order to uh, momentarily change the stock price in one direction or the other, the happier Zathagua is. So he awards his uh, most fervent uh, followers uh, with uh, uh, mansions and Maybachs and, uh, uh, in the end, of course, uh, devours uh, all of them as well, and perhaps turns them over to the SEC, one hopes. Um, I have an elevator pitch for a modern Sathagwa cult, which I have pitched to Chaosium, so I'm not going to pitch it to uh, Chris Kelly, but I'll give him my other elevator pitch for a modern Sathagwa cult, because service is our watchword here at Ken and Robin. Um, my elevator pitch is that, because Sathagwa is associated with uh, seekers after magical lore, right? Your, your wizards, they look into things and they get, and they go through a bunch of ridiculous barriers, and then they get to Sathagwa, and usually he eats them. But my notion is Sathagwa can then be represented as the obsessed object, right? And so if you look at obsessive 
cults. And if you're doing a modern day, it would be an obsessive online people. Sathagwa is the plasticine formless void at the center of the internet where when you get to it, it's what you were looking for, but it still kills you. So the act of becoming an obsessive uh, fanboy of anything, the act of becoming an obsessive stalker, the act of becoming an obsessive blank on the internet is dialing you in towards Sathagwa. And if you do it right and you go through the right websites and the right um, uh, uh, Eldritch uh, Ibonic uh, ISP configurations, yes, indeed, you will uh, seven GSs your way right into Sathagwa and then you, were, you become basically a drone or a puppet if he's happy or he just eats you and you're found dead in your apartment uh, four days later when you start to smell. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on drive through. Lightning round! Graham Wills asks, if you could go back in time and change one rule in any game system, yours or others, which rule would you change? Mm, I, I, I think that a lot of the rules that I would change just get ignored by people. <laughs> I don't know. I, I might go back and um, uh, change the rule in, for, for example, the, the simple, fast, easy answer, which may be the one that I give, is... Uh, alignment in D&D. It doesn't do anything. It's barely a rule. Take it out. Why not? It's stupid. But I'm not sure that that's worth the, that's even worth the time because people who don't want it don't play with it. Robin? I, I would certainly uh, agree with you there, but I also, I would go back in time and change every game that uses, uh, character time as a significant resource. I'm looking at you, RuneQuest, <laughs> and uh, some <laughs> of you may be saying, hey, but some of the, uh, shock and injury cards in, uh, the Yellow King role-playing game uh, do impose a, a period of time penalty on players when they're or not on players, on characters. Well, sometimes on players because it uses both uh, table time, which is real time at the table, or world time, which is times that passes the characters. You might be saying, hey, that uses time as a resource. And I answer, nope, that's different. And if you want me to expand on that, a Patreon backer is going to have to ask for the expansion of that idea. And we'll put it in the gaming hut where it belongs. Lightning, Lightning round. round! John W.S. Marvin asks, When you are doing rewrites and edits on a game, how do you track progress? How do you know you are done? Robin! Okay, well, you're not done. Yeah. You're just finished. Yeah. Cat <laughs> Tobin tells me when I'm done, usually a lot. <laughs> and, of course... 
as soon as your book is printed, a hideous error, the dumbest error you made will make it through into print. Yep. So that's, that's the other uh, thing there. But to track progress while revising, I basically try, if I'm just revising straight prose, to an editing day for me, my goal is uh, a number of words, which is five times my writing quota. So I'm not giving you my writing quota or my editing quota, but I have a, a word quota that I try to hit, realizing that some days you do and some days you don't, because revising is mentally taxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to head on over to the Pelgrane site, I've got a number of tips that I just uh, put up about dealing with the uh, uh, mental fatigue associated with a revision and the demoralizing effect that that can sometimes uh, induce. But uh, really, you've just sort of got to go at it methodically and keep going. At a certain point, you will become text blind. You can't read your own text anymore and see the errors in it. Uh, you'll become number blind. You don't notice where the arithmetic is wrong in your example that you didn't change after you changed the rules. And uh, that's when you hope uh, that you have a, uh, a proofer who will uh, spot both your textual and your uh, rules technical errors. There's sort of two answers to this. There's the one where you've sent it out for feedback or playtesting. You're done when you've incorporated uh, all of the issues raised by the results of that feedback, which is not the same thing at all as the number of kvetches by playtesters. But uh, that has revealed places that at the very least you were less clear about the fact that the playtester is wrong and you need to go back and fix that. Or... The game has not yet matched the game that lives in your head when you were writing it. And it's the old carve the marble away until you get to an elephant. Some people and some elephants resist the final polish. Others get finally polished. The ideal is to have the elephant just as polished as it is in your head. But four legs, a trunk, two tusks, some ears. Let's go. We got another game to do. Lightning round. Jason Thompson uh, says, commands... Reminisce quickly, of course, about the shortest lived PC you ever played. Um, you know what? I don't actually know what the shortest lived PC I've ever played because it's been so very, very long since I've had a lot of PCs. Many PCs die because the, the world disappears and that the GM loses interest or can't make it. But the most rapidly killed PC that I ever had, I think, was, uh, Sacamander, my very first ever human fighter in my very first, uh, D&D campaign. It was the first human that I built. I built an elven half-elf ranger who was awesome. And so, for another game, I built Sacamander, and he, I believe, was mauled by bugbears. It was some sort of large goblinoid creature. It may have been hobgoblins, but they just boiled out of a room and just slaughtered the hell out of him. And that taught me everything I needed to know about human fighters. Robin? I almost never play in a campaign, because I'm usually the GM. Uh, so, yeah, the same problem that when I, I play, it's a one-shot. So, all of my characters are equally short-lived. Uh, but the one that comes to mind is a uh, friar in a Robin Hood game played with uh, RuneQuest rules without magic, meaning without healing. Ooh, that's all of them were short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> Lightning <laughs> round! James Stewart asks, to what degree, if any, has Mervyn Peak, Titus Grown, Gorman Gas, Titus Alone, influenced our hobby, Robin? Uh, he's shown up in some bibliographies, and that's about it, because uh, it's kind of dense. Yeah. Ask yourself, how many games take place entirely in an enormous house? The answer is the same as the answer to your question. Lightning Round! Samwise Kreider asks, do you ever remove books from your personal libraries, and if so... How do you dispose of them? A short answer, hell no. Long answer, no with a but. Um, sometimes 
I will give books to people who deserve them and then replace them. Uh, sometimes I will accidentally buy duplicates and give books to people who deserve them. And every now and again, there is a space inspired, uh, redirection of resources and they go to live in the basement and perhaps are, uh, targets for being redeployed to half-price books sometime in the next calendar year. But don't tell Sheila. Robin? Unlike Ken, I do not have a library in my home. I live in a small downtown apartment. So absolutely, yes. Uh, Valerie and I will cycle books out of our collection once we've read them. If the uh, question is, are we going to look at this again in the next three years? Uh, except for we have a, a film library that Valerie would never let go uh, and... Uh, but other than that, uh, I am pretty ruthless getting rid of books. And uh, the thing about Toronto is that uh, you can just, if you have stuff that you want to get rid of that is actually useful to somebody, this isn't garbage. And of course, none of these books are garbage. Uh, you can just put them out in the street and there's enough foot traffic that someone will pick them up and they'll disappear within hours. Right. Lightning round! Drew Clowry asks, how do I make bargaining feel good fun in a system with very clunky resources? E.g., player wants to buy a new sword, not magic, not fancy. This costs one resource. Player wants to bargain because their character has the bargain skill, but bargaining in it below one resource is a problem. But I want the player to bargain to feel good for having bargained. You have uh, walked yourself into a box, Drew Clowry, but Robin <laughs> will get you back out of it. Robin? Well, the, I think the only answer out of this box is give them some other benefit. So they get a sword, but they get a better sword, right? That the it still costs one, but now it has an extra beautiful he gives you the one with the extra beautiful filigree or the one that uh, is alleged to have killed uh, the ranger of Durst. Or he throws in a uh, extra whetstone that uh, will keep it sharp uh, longer. So uh, instead of uh, getting something for uh, less uh, money, since the lowest amount of money in this world is one resource, you get something a little better. Or, you know, sword and a dagger. Fight two-handed style. But yes, Robin is correct. Sword plus. Lightning Lightning round. Sean asked, what was the last idea you recall reading or perhaps writing? And thought, oh, that's clever, or some variation thereof. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I, I don't know if the idea is one that I thought exactly, oh, that's clever, but I thought, that, oh, that's interesting, which is good. Uh, someone compared Kevin Feige to legendary RKO uh, film producer Val Luton, and I said, that's interesting. I don't know if I've said that's clever yet, but uh, maybe I'll say more about it. Who can say? Robin? Yesterday, I was feeling that an idea that I had and pitched back in the fall, I finally got to that part in my own manuscript and went, hey, wait, this is pretty cool, uh, which is, uh, so I'm working on the Big Rubble uh, source book for, uh, for RuneQuest. Uh, this is a big sandbox campaign. Uh, as the name suggests, it is uh, set in uh, kind of the area's biggest open-air dungeon and one in which all of the different cultures uh, of the world uh, kind of meet up, sometimes unconventionally, and also uh, it's it's uh, the world of Glorantha, so there's a 1,500-year detailed history of this spot up into the point where uh, somebody built a settlement on it, and then uh, that offended a bunch of other people, and they came and destroyed that settlement, and then uh, and more people came and got annoyed that the, about the destruction, so they built something, and then other people invaded, and then just a hundred years ago, the Dragonute showed up, and then uh, this enabled this guy to show up, and now it's been uh, was conquered, and that's been conquered another time. So there's a ton of history uh, that you do not want to present the players in a big wadge of exposition. But what do you do in a big dungeon environment? Well, you look around for treasure. So the idea is that each of the treasure descriptions is a way of showing you about the world. 
And so uh, when they find something, they discover, oh, well, this is obviously from the strata before history, where this is layer of ashes from when the forest burned, and this shield is from that time, and it has this mythic property because this is what was happening on this spot at this time. And so the uh, the treasures have an archaeological and uh, expositional quality to them, which uh, as I am actually implementing this idea that I had a while ago and wasn't sure would work, I kind of at this point think, hey, this is kind of working. Lightning round! Sean G. asks, what is the one book-slash-movie I need to encounter before running a Weird West game, Robin? Uh, The answer is Ravenous. (laughs) The answer is the television show Wild Wild West. Lightning round! Ash Jackson is the scroll bard. Ash, when, where have you not visited yet that you want to, and what takes you there? I would like to visit Florence and Prague, I think, are the two big, glowing, to-be-done spots in my tour of the great cities of the world. And uh, what takes me there, ideally, is a a very generous game convention, but I'll settle for anything. Lottery tickets, you know, (laughs) saving the world from kaiju, whatever it takes. Robin? So, uh, as you suggest, the way that that we humble game designers get to tour the world is uh, by being invited uh, to be at conventions, which is great because you get to hang out with the convention organizers and see whatever place that you've seen from the eyes of the people who actually live there, plus tourist attractions usually. And so uh, it's, you know, incumbent on places to have game conventions to invite us to. Yeah. So it, it has been noted that uh, I've never uh, been invited to an Irish game convention. And, uh, you know, Cat and, and Gar are suffering enormous uh, shame over this. And I think someone should finally relieve them of that, that terrible tragedy. Also, I understand that there's uh, role-playing games, including some by me, in Spain. But I think maybe uh, some Spaniards should invite me somewhere. Yeah. Lightning, Lightning round. round! Corey Liss asks, Back when we were youngins, RPGs came in systems. Hero, BRP, GURPS, etc. Nowadays, it's all about engines, gumshoe, apocalypse, fate, and the rest. What, if any, is the difference between a system... And an engine, Robin. Um, I think it's entirely one of Chrome. I, you know, drama system is called a system. It just depends on what sounds better. What sounds cool. With the other thing. Right. And I certainly say gumshoe system as often as I say gumshoe engine. Engine implies, uh, it's more active, it's more futuristic. It's, you know, it's really making something go. Whereas I guess system implies some boring fuddy-duddy way of trying to rationalize everything in the universe and put it together and, and have it make sense. But I, I really think it's, you know, almost entirely about euphony that, uh, powered by the apocalypse system just doesn't sound quite as good as powered by the apocalypse engine. Cause it's powered. It has to be an engine. Right. You need power for yeah. your engines. It's an engine. Uh, I agree that it's 99% advertising. Uh, but the 1% that isn't is that a system implies an answer to everything, that the system incom- incorporates everything that happens. An engine is just, we're just about what makes it go. You want lights? You want a radio? That's on you. And I think that in terms of accuracy of what a uh, role-playing game can actually do at the table, engine is perhaps a slightly more accurate term than system, but I don't begrudge anyone who says system because obviously your lymphatic system doesn't do jack unless you got a bl- bunch of other systems doing things. So knock yourself out, system folks. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, 
Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. Lightning Round! Round. Ray Slikinski asks, If Time Watch Incorporated and Time Incorporated exist in the same universe, is it friendly competition for time contracts? Has Ken ever had to deal with meddling Time Watch agents trying to thwart his slash time's plan? (laughs) They they would love it to be a friendly competition. It's not a competition. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. Robin? (laughs) Right. Well, it, it may very well be that Time Watch got the idea for what everything everything they're doing from listening to a certain podcast. Exactly. We'll say no more. Lightning round! Andrew M. Reichert asks, what are a few of your favorite elements that make for an effective one-shot? Assume that the goal is narrative fun for the players and GM, not showcasing a system at a con or some other consideration. Robin? I think you want to uh, have a big finish in mind that people can head toward a situation that they're plunged into uh, pretty early on and make it big, have have movie stakes uh, rather than a pilot episode of a TV uh, series stakes. Uh, the one exception I make there is for a drama system where it actually works better to play it as the first episode of a cable series that then it, they then have to imagine the rest of when they leave the table. <laughs> That's exactly how cable series are made, too. Um, <laughs> I, I think Robin is, is absolutely correct. You need to have a big ending. I think the other thing that is works great for a one-shot is big stakes. So this is the game about, do you go mad? Do you marry your sister? Do you get eaten by Godzilla? Whatever it is, it's not a little quotidian plus one sword, plus two sword. This is a big and personal, and if you make it big and personal at the table, that makes it feel like a really meaty drama uh, and, and that's what you want in a one-shot. You, you don't have the luxury of serialization. Lightning round! Uh, Jonathan Kime asks, What is the game night experience like around your table? Food? Setup? Number of players? Uh, we've addressed this, I guess, a little bit, or at least about my experience, but usually we have six players for the um, uh, Monday game, which is my primary game. My current uh, Fall Delta Green game, my secondary game, has... Five players. Both games, we are generally around a large table, uh, a living room table in one case, a kitchen table in the other case. Uh, food is consumed before the uh, ceremonies firmly start, but during the, you remember last time when, and reestablishing stuff so that ideally they all uh, join together. We order takeout in the first case, and people just sort of bring their own food in the second case. And the setup is, I'm the GM, everyone else is the players, let's go. Awesomeness. Robin? Uh, my group is seven people, of which I'm lucky to get four on any given night. Uh, we uh, sit around a room. I have a uh, sort of a big fold-out table, which is uh, one of the leaves is up, the other is down, and everybody else sits in chairs with TV trays. We don't eat communally. I uh, have my dinner before people show up, and then some people bring takeout, and some people have already eaten. And uh, 
that's kind of it, I guess. Lightning round! Kevin L. Nolt asks, best or only condiment for burgers and for fries? Robin? So for fries at home, it's ketchup. If I'm uh, out in the world and a uh, some sort of a a, a mayo-y thing uh, is is presented, I'll have some with mayo and some with uh, ketchup. Uh, when I'm out in the world, a burger has barbecue sauce, uh, tomato, and ketchup. And when I've made my own hamburgers, the very best hamburgers in the world, uh, on the grill, uh, it is a layer of cheese whiz on the bottom uh, bun. Uh, and then on top of the burger, there is a uh, layer of barbecue sauce. Then you take some ripple chips, you crush them on top of the uh, ketchup, and then you, uh, or sorry, on top of the barbecue sauce, then you put ketchup on top of the chips, then you crush them down with the other bun, and then you have the best hamburger in the world. Your Honor, the prosecution rests. The best condiment for burgers and for fries is mayonnaise, because it's the one that tastes good on both of them. The best single condiment to put on a burger is mustard. The best single condiment to put on fries is nothing. Put salt on your fries. Eat the damn potatoes like a grown-up person. Lightning round! Jesse Morgan asks, what neighborhoods of your home cities would you recommend as a setting for a Vampire the Masquerade game? Um, well, one of the wonderful things about Chicago is, and one of the wonderful things about Vampire the Masquerade, is that it's all things to all people. You can play a gritty street-level game on the west side, you can play a game of wealth and power and puffy shirts in the Gold Coast, and you can have both of them happen in the same Chicago. Uh, so, certainly, uh, there's areas around uh, Kingsbury Street in Chicago that whenever I'm up there, I am looking, it's sort of like, there's some warehouses, there's some railroad ray tracks that I think are a right-of-way for deliveries that are not really used for... Uh, transit. There's some sort of skeevy looking businesses. I always figured that whole area is owned by vampires, but there's a, there's all kinds of places in Chicago where you'll see a house or a bar on the corner and it's uh it, the glass is opaque because it's so old and the door has been painted over and that's always a vampire den. So uh nothing but great stuff. There's also an abandoned uh, Catholic church in Chicago that I think would make a great vampire setting as well. But, you know, hey, Chicago, greatest city in the world, greatest vampire setting in the world. Robin. Toronto's uh, rich people are are uh, weird. Um, I think that they're not quite cool enough to be vampires, but I would still <laughs> make them vampires. Uh, and so I would set it in, like, Yorkville, that super expensive shopping district that started out as a hippie district in the 60s and in the bridal path and, uh, you know, among the great monster homes being constructed out in the, in the exurbs. Lightning round! And James Kiley asks, what single historic event is the most obvious evidence of meddling by time travelers? Robin. I would say the various nuclear close calls, and particularly the ones where, not only the ones where the either NORAD or its Russian equivalent lit up and they were ready to shoot off the missiles and then they realized that nothing was really going on. I think obviously that's a time traveler intervening there. Um, and particularly the 1961 uh, Goldsboro, North Carolina B-52 crash where a plane with uh, two nukes on it crashed, and neither of those nukes blew up North Carolina. And that's good. I'm going to go with the standard answer, the official answer, the one in all the time travel handbooks. Uh, Ogadai Khan dying suddenly and aborting the Mongol invasion of Western Europe. I think that that is so very, very clearly one that we've actually covered it on our very own Ken's Time Machine. And by the way, I don't even get royalties on those handbooks. So what kind of contract is this, Robin? Lightning Nikolai asks, you're both listed as consultants for D&D 5th Edition Player's Handbook. 
What advice did you give? And how much did Merles and Crawford use your contribution? Um, it's been so long that I'm not even sure I remember any specific advice. I gave a lot of sort of make sure that the game can do this, make sure that it can approach systems play, make sure that uh, certain um, qualities of experience that I've found in, in fantasy gaming aren't nerfed. I don't know necessarily how much Mike and Jeremy used my contribution because I have not played 5e long enough to know whether or not it's still uh, grates on my uh, toes the same way that other editions of D&D have in the past. I don't think it does because I think it's probably been engineered to be a non-toe grating system for all manner of approaches. But I, again, I'm not sure that Mike and Jeremy were like, oh, thank God, Ken pointed out that being a ranger shouldn't be annoying and pointless. Um, I think that they probably figured that out. <laughs> Robin? I played an early version for a little while with my group uh, in a campaign that didn't quite gel, but not because of anything in the rules. Um, and basically I said, hey, you're on the right track with this uh, simpler, uh, stripped-down version of uh, D&D. It's uh, uh, slick the way that you're knocking things down. Things that they did wind up doing that I'm less fond of weren't in that draft. Um, the main specific piece of advice uh, that I remember was make sure there's a really easy version of the fighter that a ultra casual player can start off with first level and not have to make a lot of decisions. And I think that wound up in it. Um, and, but in general, uh, you know, when I do a brief lucrative consulting gig, it is not my, uh, want to go and have t-shirts made about right. it. Lightning Lightning round. Uh, Louis Sylvester asks, in what ways do you suspect the new Dune film will succeed or crash and burn? More specifically, what do you hope Villeneuve brings to the film? In what way will it need to be different from the 84 film to succeed? Can an epic of Dune scope even be successfully made into two or three films? Good Lord, Louis Sylvester, you've packed a whole Dune trilogy into that question. Robin? Um, I noped out on the novel at page 100 or so <laughs> uh, with prejudice. Yeah. So my answer would be, adapt a good book. <laughs> I think Villeneuve, uh, I, I certainly hope that he brings the visual creativity and imagination that he's shown in his other work uh, to Dune because it is a, a novel that very much lives or dies on the flare and the flash and the chrome and the color. And I think that's why I liked the, the, the Lynch movie of it because he is your man for flare, flash, chrome and color. And uh, since Lynch disdains narrative even more than Frank Herbert, I don't think it was a big problem there. Um, I don't know. Hollywood ruins things. That's what Hollywood does. That's why they have producers. Uh, so if it's, if it crashes and burns, it's going to be because no one with an artistic opinion was uh, allowed to have the final vote. Lightning round! Trung Boy asks, what spice or sauce is underrated? Counterpoint, what is overrated? I don't think people love cumin enough. Cumin is great. It's got all the warm warmth of cinnamon without tasting like Christmas. It's got the heat of uh chili pepper without making you think about nothing but heat and it uh tastes like taco tuesday which is uh, um, one of america's top three holidays so cumin the answer is cumin robin so past things i've uh, recommended are bear bear spice mixture from ethiopia that's and lovely korean barbecue sauce also good so the new ingredient uh is a, is an herb i've got a new herb in the garden this year uh the olive plant and uh this is a uh a small leafy uh sort of thin stemmed uh plant uh that uh, a small amount uh if you cut it up and put it in uh pasta or a salad or whatever gives it a uh, a strong an almost sort of spicy taste of olives, and it's uh, uh, quite delicious so it's the leaves of the olive tree there there's some dispute in the household as to whether this is a an olive sapling or a completely different thing that just happens to tastes like an olive and it's called an olive plant. And uh, the internet, uh, of course, 
is typing useless. in olive and plant. Right. Yeah. Nowhere. You're, you're a dead man if you do that. And, uh, overrated, uh, sauce, of course, would be hollandaise. Uh, especially when you're putting it on eggs benedict because you're having eggs in egg sauce. Lightning round! Philip Masters asks, what is Madame Blavatsky glowering at, Robin? Madame Blavatsky, Phil, is glowering at us. For seven years, she's been uh, looking down at us, and uh, she, uh, frankly, despite all of the rigmarole that we have uh, uh, woven over the years, uh, considers us fun ruiners. And it is true, Ken, uh, that uh, you have expressed some skepticism over her theory of the root races. I have, uh, and uh, and I think she's just uh, I think she's just peeved at us. Uh, but you know, if you look at her in photos, well, obviously she, that's her expression when we ba- went back in the time machine and uh, snapped that pic of her. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what uh, what happened. And so, uh, Ken, I guess the only thing then that we have to continue doing is to make sure that Madame Blasky continues to glower at us. Uh, perhaps even for the next seven years to come. Indeed. We and our Patreon backers can work together to that end. Yes. In episode 400, we'll have to look up at the uh, at the wall and see if uh, if she's cracking a smile. Maybe that's a bad sign. Uh, but until then, uh, Ken, I think that we have uh, completed not only another successful week, but another successful year. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by Jim Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com. Ken and Robin. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered three dozen of our latest design, Valhalla Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>